Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! You're listening to KBU 90.7 FM. Greetings and welcome to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBOO Portland. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. I'm your host, Adam Carpinelli, and today we're here with Dr. Karma Corcoran. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Adam. Thank you. Good to see you. Gosh, when, I forget when you were on last, but it's been a minute. Yeah. And um, there's all kinds of amazing things that you've been doing. Um, in, including uh, the, these these rumors about this great book that you wrote. So we want to hear all about that. But let's just start off real quick with just some of your background, how you got in, involved with all this work. Tell us your story. So I am Dr. Karma Corcoran. I'm Chippewa Cree. My great-great-grandfather was Chief Big Bear. My great-grandfather is Chief Little Bear. And Open Eyes Little Bear is my grandmother. And I have been you know, involved in, you know, the issues of Native American people for a long time. I direct the Indian law program up at Lewis and Clark Law School. I think I'm in my 15th year or I just finished my 15th year. I have no idea. I'm also an adjunct professor at Portland State University. I've been teaching there for quite a long time in their Indigenous Nations Studies program. And I wrote a book, and the book really comes out of lived experience as far as my family's concerned, my tribe, and certainly Native American people as a whole. And so I, for a long time, was able to volunteer as a support volunteer for... um, folks going into Coffee Creek, the women's prison, and I did it for quite a few years, and so I went in with people like Trish Jordan, Tana Sanchez, Ed Edmo, Art McConville, who had been really doing this work for probably a couple decades, and then I started my PhD And I knew I was going to be writing about the issue of incarceration. And, you know, when you start a PhD, your your topic is huge. It's just huge. And then you have to keep narrowing it down, narrowing it down, narrowing it down. And one of my professors was a theoretical physicist. 
And he had done a lot of work with First Nations people, with the Blackfoot people. And so I approached him about what I wanted to do, especially because he had introduced me to this theory called general action theory, which he wrote. And it just melded so well with traditional ways of knowing and being for Native people that I wanted to not only write about it, but do something as a practical application. Because, you know, certainly I love theory. I'm, you know, philosophy major. But to me, theory without some sort of action is just mind gymnastics. And so I was fortunate. I'd been going out for quite a while being a support person. And I was able to lead this workshop called Healing the Sacred Who. The workshop's been going on for a very long time. I'm sure that it, it's still going on. But I wanted to do it using general action theory and was able to do that and really use it in this group with these 12 women, many of whom I'm still in contact with today. So I finished up the dissertation and a good friend of mine, Bob Miller, who used to uh, teach at Lewis and Clark, but we, we lost him to Arizona law. He has just been a wonderful supporter and friend for years. And so he said, you know, what do you think about turning it into a book? I said, well, I've always thought about it, but it just, it just seems too frightening for words. And so he said, you know, here's my publisher. I have no pull, but why don't you write a book proposal? And I did. And they accepted it. And then there's many, many steps. But the book was published in um, June of this year. And I have been on the road a lot, <laughs> talking about the book, talking about the work, just raising the awareness um, for Native people and allies about incarceration. And I focused on Native women for a couple reasons, even though I was really guided by the experience of all of my brothers who have been locked up. I realized two things. One, I wasn't going to be able to go home to Montana to do this work. Also, there's certain things as a Cree woman that I wouldn't discuss with a man or a man wouldn't discuss certain things with me. And so I realized that the best thing for me to do would be concentrating on women. Plus I had been mentoring and still mentor a number of native women. Some I've had a relationship with for 20 years. And so I was really glad that I reached that place of, okay, this is, this is where I can dig in and do this work 
although certainly general action theory and the book can be used for any societal issue, whether it's an Indian country or in this larger, you know, oppressive Western society that we live in. Um, so it's been great carrying the work forward, really approaching so many issues of incarceration, and even like what you and I chatted about and touched on, Adam, is I'm really doing a lot with juvenile justice and our youth that we really need to do better and how we can really disrupt this generations of incarceration, which happens a, a lot with ethnic minorities and certainly native kids. So it's great, you know, it's exhausting, but it's good. Well, we want to hear about all the kind of, say, you know, use the term qualitative data that comes out of, of, of the book, which, which again, sounds like comes from a lot of very personal experiences, interpersonal experiences and um, discussions and, and things of that nature. And also just wanted to maybe just start off with, cause I know you, you probably know all this there, there's a lot of very simple kind of quantitative data mm-hmm. that really hits at home when we look at specifically native incarceration mm-hmm. for youth, for women, just to give some perspective for listeners who don't understand how, how complicated and uh, well, off-putting th- th- that it is, I guess, as well. So could we yeah. just kind of start with that? Well, let's start with just some quantitative facts in that there's a huge pipeline for Native girls from living life to juvenile justice. And it results in a higher number of Native young women being incarcerated than any other ethnic minority. And so statistics show that these young women tend to have a strong experience being foster kids They have a strong experience with one or more parent incarcerated. Also, home life where there is drugs and alcohol prevalence. Certainly, a lot of them don't grow up with their parents. They may grow up with their grandparents. There's a huge disruption in family life for these youth, they also get sentenced differently than white girls do. So let's say that, you know, a white girl runs away from home versus a native girl running away from home for whatever reason that may be, the native girl is going to get sentenced and she's gonna be sentenced for longer. Whereas generally speaking, the white girl, they're going to take a look at what's going on in her life. They're going to, you know, uh, maybe refer to counseling or some program. 
And so really until she's some sort of repeat offender, she has a whole different deal going on. Um, Native youth also tend to drop out of school at a higher rate and a younger age. So, you know, you've got middle school kids dropping out of school. You know, they're 13, 14 years old. And so all of these things really are markers of what can happen. Another thing too is frankly abuse. And whether that's abuse by a family member, Uncle Timmy, neighbor Bob, a teacher, somebody in community, they tend to suffer more physical abuse and unfortunately a higher rate of sexual abuse. And all of these things really highly affect these young girls. They're girls. Um, so they go to juvie and there again, there's a higher rate of native girls that then end up in the criminal justice system of this country. I actually um, have mentored three young women who went right from juvie to prison with no stopping. So I like to share that these girls, they're not growing up in prison. They're growing older in prison. Another thing to think about, especially working with women, is that when you spend a great deal of your time as a youth locked up, you're not growing emotionally and in maturity as somebody who has a completely different life. So I've seen so many examples of, you know, women finally getting out of prison, but their emotional level is that of a teenager. Plus they've been locked up for a long time. So they don't have the skills about really mature friendships. And that includes, you know, with a significant partner, even friends, family, and also important to note that a lot of them are young parents. So they may have been locked up for the first three or four years of their child's life. Then they're coming out of prison and expected to parent this child. But they themselves have not gone through, you know, kind of the natural process that those of us who, you know, follow that route of, you know, school and then college and marriage and those things and so they need healing more than anything else they need healing they need support they need culturally specific programs because it's a long haul for them and if they don't receive those things they're going back in that's just all there is to it and whether it's because of a crime that they commit or they're the ride along 
when their boyfriend holds up 7-Eleven, drug deals, whatever it is, the odds of, of them going back in are really, really huge. And so my message really with the book and, and all of the public speaking that I do is that we must do better. We have got to do a better job. And I'll share when I was writing the book, um, Adam, I was very fortunate that I gathered a group of women elders in our community. Um, and it started with the dissertation actually, and just said, you know, will you meet with me, you know, two or three times a year? Will you hold me up in prayer? And they did. And then it was time to write the book. You know, I asked them if they would continue to do that. And they did. They were so faithful to me. Well, one time I was having lunch with them and they're like, this one who's very forthright, let's put it that way. She said, what is the matter with you? And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, something's the matter with you. And I said, well, I'm just worried about something that I'm I feel like I should say, but I think it's going to piss people off. And she slaps the table. She goes, piss us off. And I'm like, okay. And so, you know, what I had to say, which I continue to say is we're not doing a good job. If we were doing well, we would not have all the people locked up that we do, especially all these kids you know, from senior citizens. And, you know, if we were presenting culture and healing to them in a way that they could receive it, we would not be where we are today. And I started crying after I told her because I'd been weighing on me so deeply. And she just said, you have to say it, you know, this is why you're doing this work this is why you're doing the book and if people get their nose out of joint that's fine you know we've got you and uh and so that really continues to be my message is that we need to provide pathways to hope and healing in a way that they can receive it so general action theory really speaks to that. It's interesting because something that I was drawn to right away was that work like this should really be done in the community as opposed to our experience of always having these outsiders come in and say, you know, you people have a problem with alcoholism. So what we're going to do is, you know, we might have a workshop, we might do this and that, you'll get a questionnaire, you might get, you know, a $20 gift card, and then they go away. And what doesn't happen is they don't really establish trust and relationship, even protocol of working with our people. They certainly don't come back again and say, this is what we learned. So there's no dissemination of information. And something too, which I really hope people are listening, is when you sign a release, 
they own the story that you have told them in the sense that they can write about it, they can use it to get grants, further their research. And so if you've said something that is very personal or should not be shared outside of our community, they're not going to come back to you and say, you know, do you want us to share this? Because you've signed that piece of paper. Another thing about the piece of paper is that like when we were, you know, working with the women with the workshop, I went in a couple times. They, of course, knew me, but I went in a couple times to explain general action theory and also that they had the right to have their name used or not. So, you know, it could have gone participant A, participant B, whatever. All of them wanting to have their name and tribal affiliation. It was so empowering for them to own their own story and also really made sure that they understood it. So there might have been a woman or two who would be considered not really literate. And so the young woman, Julia Yoshimoto, who was going in with me and another volunteer really went over that document to make sure that they understood what they were signing. And you don't see that, you know, in the larger world. And so every single thing about the process of working together was using general action theory. And another example would be, you know, we've all gone to conferences, we've all gone to workshops where it's in some hotel, you know, we're there for the day, um, we're addressing some sort of societal issue, and by five, we've come up with something. Usually, I did go to one, I loved them because we came up with nothing because it was on restorative justice. <laughs> and it's like, you know, changing the world in eight hours. I don't think so. And so instead, general action theory goes along with the group. If we have to talk about a subject longer, if we have to take space and time and come back to it, we will. And that was the same with the women. Every week we do a check-in, you know, at the beginning, a talking circle. And then, you know, I would say, well, you know, today I've got so-and-so visiting and they're going to share with us about fetal alcohol syndrome, which is, you know, prevalent uh, in our communities. And then, you know, next week we might do another check-in, another subject. Well, in fetal alcohol syndrome, I had one, one young woman who spoke up and said, you know, I have two adolescent girls and I drank the whole time in both of these pregnancies and there's nothing wrong with them. So in Western way, my response might be something like, buck up buttercup or statistically i don't really think that that's possible but instead it was like you know thank you for sharing 
it was probably two weeks after we had discussed fetal alcohol syndrome and my lovely presenter, um, Susie Kushner, had given them handouts. There was on every subject, you know, we gave out handouts for them to, you know, kind of compile their own reading notebook. Well, we started with the check-in. We got to this young woman and she said, can we talk about fetal alcohol syndrome? So in the Western way, it'd be like, we discussed that two weeks ago, you know, if we get a chance, see me after class sort of thing. And of course it was, yes, what, what would you, what would you like to discuss about it? She burst into tears. She said that she'd read the information that she thought about her adolescent girls and realized they were already showing some signs, including the impulsiveness, different things. And she cried and she cried and she cried. And we cried right along with her, you know, and then just supported her because of course, ancillary to that was she felt some guilt and shame. And so supporting her and so it takes longer to do this work, but it also really melds with traditional ways because our people were not in a hurry. What they wanted was the best for community. And so it's really been pleasurable to, to live using it. And you had mentioned qualitative. Of the 12 women that I've mentored for a very long time, there's more too, but what I call the original 12, only three have reoffended. And to me, that's a good qualitative statistic, you know, and they're living different lives. You know, and sometimes it'll go a really long time that I don't hear from them. And then this summer I had a couple. One, she just had a new baby. There was issues, um, legal issues. Um, she was homeless. And so helping her to access resources, reaching out to community for support for her. Um, the other one had a different partner than, you know, 15 years ago. So there's some domestic violence, child custody issues. So helping her to, you know, access resources. So it's like being a navigator. I'm not here to fill out the paperwork for them, you know, but helping them navigate because the whole goal of my work with healing the sacred hoop was for them to be able to create in their minds a different life for themselves than they'd had and that was a lot of work for them a lot of work but by the end all 12 had created a dream and had talked about some practical things like i need to get my ged or 
you know, I need to take care of all those DM fines or, you know, whatever it was where they honestly hadn't addressed some of these barriers because they seemed too overwhelming. Um, so there's so many aspects of it that are validating and empowering. And so, like I said, it's exhausting, but I, I do love the work. <laughs> well, and people also need to check out this great book. Yes. And the book is written by Dr. Karma Corcoran, Director of Indian Law Program at Lewis and Clark Law School, Adjunct Professor at Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State University. And the title of the book is Incarceration of Native Women on Nebraska Press. So... For listeners, check that out. There'll be a link also um, for the show on the website that will um, highlight where people can find that as well. And uh, and again, thanks so much. Um, there's so much more to talk about, so I think we have to d- definitely follow up on this. And always a pleasure to have you. And you've been listening to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBOO Portland. Listen to this in previous Prison Pipeline programs at kboo.fm slash Prison Pipeline, like Prison Pipeline on Facebook. Special thanks to our guest and Prison Pipeline Collective member Karen James for post-production. Free them all. Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and on the web at KBOO.FM. That's Doc Watson, one of the many artists you can hear on the Cascadia Coffee House each Friday morning when we share a wide variety of traditional and contemporary folk and roots music with you from 5.30 to 7 a.m. Each week, your hosts Dan Schrammack and Stephen Morrison bring you some of our favorite new releases and plenty of vintage favorites. It's a great way to start your Fridays, discover some new music, and find out about shows and festivals coming to the area. You can also find show playlists and listen to archive shows on demand via our website at kboo.fm and also via our free mobile app. 